I want to read 2 Peter 3, 8 through 14, and the title of this is The End, because we come to the end of the book, but it's all about the end. It's about the end of everything. And so uh, as we read it, I'm going to ask you to try to try to listen with imaginations that are um, informed by the Holy Spirit. I think we have a tendency to read words in the Bible and just uh, glaze over. We don't try to ingest it. Today, do that. Because this is a very difficult subject, I have to be honest. And some of the words we're going to read are overwhelming. But I believe it's uh, your responsibility to try, try to take God serious sometimes, and this is one of those times. So if we're going to begin reading in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So strap on. It's going to be a lot of fun. Strap on. Peter is writing this in response to verse 4. If you look at verse 4, we talked about this last week. There are going to be cynics who keep mocking the return of Christ. In verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so the cynic is mocking the idea that he's returning. Last week I said if a person asks a question to learn, instead of just simply for disparaging God, if they wait around, answers will come. And so we've just read in verses 8 through 13, these are the answers to that question. So those who are willing to hear, let them hear. I have to be honest, it's hard to hear this truth, but I think all true believers really want to know. They want to know when is their Lord going to come? When is the King when is the king going to arrive? That's what we're going to talk about today. How will it all end? Because truthfully, I'm getting tired of waiting. I don't know about you, but seriously. Seriously, why is he taking so long? Why is he taking so long? If heaven is better, if heaven is better than here, why are we waiting for it? Why do we have to see so much wreckage from sin's wages around us? Like, If God would end it, tears would finally cease. They'd be done. We don't have to cry over our sin anymore. 
If Jesus would show up, that stomach acid that builds in your stomach when you're worried and you're depressed and you're anxious, it would be done, done churning. The long nights when you can't sleep would be sweet. How about getting rid of the anxiety of paying bills or the call from the doctor that haunts you at night? Man. Jesus came back. The decisions of loved ones who've made choices you wouldn't make would be made right. The love that has turned to hatred would be turned back to love. And the competition that has turned to war would cease. Swords would finally be beaten to plowshares. Wouldn't it be nice when our children would be able to run, go to school, or be out in the streets without the worry of somebody who might pick them up, maim them, kill them, or rape them? Wouldn't that be nice to finally be done with that? When will, when will God save the people? There was a musical in the 70s. We'd watch it at our school a lot. It's called Godspell. It's kind of a strange show, honestly. But there was one song in this musical that always... It always resonated with me, and I'd, I sing it in the woods often. Kind of embarrassing to sing, but I'll sing it here for you. It goes like this. It goes, When will God save the people? Oh, God of mercy, when? The people, Lord, the people, when will you come again? When will he come? Getting tired of it. Tired of it. Well, Peter's going to give us three facts to consider. Three. And we need to really think through these because we as humans, we're finite. And being finite means we're limited specifically in our understanding. Scripture says we see through a glass darkly. It's kind of smudged with mud. We don't really know what's really true. And so as a result, we're hasty in making decisions specifically about the end of the world. We, we uh, don't see all the possibilities or what's really going on. When it comes to understanding God's slowness, His tardiness, we need to consider three facts. And by facts, here's what I mean. Solid certainties that are certain and solid because God has said so. When something's in His Word, they be, they're fact. They're not fact because logic and reason tells me that. They're fact because He said so. So these three facts are issues that you are, you gotta, you got to consider, you have to think through, and we're going to take our time on them, because if you understood it, then I don't think time and life would be so, I don't know, it would be uh, scary for you. The first one is the nature of time. We're going to discuss the nature of time. For humans, time is linear and it goes fast, like sand from an hourglass, it just doesn't stop. And so because of that, we have to act now. We're always acting fast. We're always in busy, rush mode. Why does, why does God seem to be so slow when I'm so busy? Peter's going to answer that. Second fact we need to deal with is the purpose of patience. There's a purpose behind it. If we have so much to do and so little time to do it, patience seems to be like the last thing I have time for, right? I mean, I don't have time for patience. We need to get stuff done now. And so by patience, 
God is strategic with it. In his mind, he's using it for a purpose. Every good cook knows this. In the first, in the first service, Jill is a cook and she makes cakes. And you know, sometimes cakes take a while to rise. If you pull them out of the oven too quick, they'll just implode. It takes patience to make a nice cake. It takes patience to make a godly life. Third thing we're going to talk about is the severity of the promise. The severity, the severity of the promise. When we want God to act, we forget what we're really asking for. We're asking for the day of the Lord to come. And when it comes to the day of the Lord, I am not sure it means what you think it means. So Peter's going to enlighten us on the day of the Lord. So let's go through these three facts. The first, let's discuss the nature of time. We find it in verse 8. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. He's quoting directly from the Psalms, Psalm 90, verse 4. It's a psalm of Moses. Moses wrote this psalm about the sovereignty of God. And Moses says, For a thousand years in your sight, talking about God, are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. So Moses was pointing to the insignificance of time in relation to eternity. In relation to eternity, time is like it's like a blink of an eye. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes away. Or it's like dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind, right, Vicky? You know, you love that song by Kansas. So Peter jumps on this idea of the insignificance of time, and he says, while it's true that time is insignificant, it also is tremendously significant. Time, from God's perspective, has a seriousness, an intensity to it. Not only is a thousand years like a day to God, but one day has enough in it in God's mind that is like a thousand years. So time doesn't just have length. To God it has depth and height. It's thick. It's intense. It's involved. It reminds us that God is both infinitely big, that's called transcendence, and infinitely close, eminence. He's close. He's eminent. He's close by. He's right here, right now. In this second. Listen to what one writer says. God's use of time is extensive so that he may use a thousand years to do what we might feel should be done in a day. Do it now, God. Or, it's intensive, he's doing in a day what we might feel could only be done in a thousand years. What does God take his time on that we want to be done in a day? I've got an idea. I've got an idea. The raising of children. I'm telling you, I remember, I would, I would say, when are my kids ever going to grow up? My two-year-old, when will he ever be able to go potty by himself? I am sick of buying diapers. If you ever buy diapers, you'll go broke buying diapers. Man, you pay $100 for one diaper that they soil in a half hour. It's ridiculous. Raising children is an endless task of monotony. Why doesn't God speed it up? Come on. What does God seem to do in a day that we wish would take a thousand years? I've got a good one for that. 
the raising of children. Why does my son have to graduate? It seems so quick. Can't he be in school forever? It's life gets hard. You've got to make these big decisions. Why doesn't God slow life down sometimes so quick? Time is relative, and it is not ours to control. It's not ours. We are creatures, and so we live in time. But there's only one creator, and he lives out of time. And since he created, as this says, he is outside of it. He can enter anytime he wishes, and he can wait as long as he wants to to accomplish what he wishes. So God never wrings his hand. God's never worried And he's not a slave to time. He's not a slave to it. The most amazing use of time, if you really think about it, this is amazing. Most amazing use of time was the coming of the Messiah. For thousands of years, Scripture predicted the coming of Jesus. Some scholars will say from the time of Genesis to the arrival of Jesus was 4,000, maybe 10,000 years. Genesis gave a prediction that one would come who would strike the head of the serpent referring to Christ. took a long time for him to show up. And when he did, he only lived for 33 years. But you know what's most significant? In three hours, he paid for the sin of all of humanity. In three mere hours. Everything that was ever done or will ever be done He died on the cross for in three hours. Unbelievable. So, it's not about the passing of time. It's about the plan of God and how he chooses to use that time. He is never late. He's never early because he's eternal. And because he's eternal, he's always in the moment. And he's above the moment. So he never worries about what's coming next. So why do you worry? As I said earlier, humans are finite. God is the creator. I want you to go to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. I want you to see this. Because I think this might be a huge encouragement to you. It has been to me recently. It's in the Old Testament. You got like Daniel, then you go to Hosea. Go about three verses to the right. Or chapters to the right. You get Habakkuk, books to the right. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3. And I want you to look at the second part. Habakkuk was a time period when the people were really under major, they were being persecuted by nations around them and they wanted God to return. And so chapter 2, verse 3, Habakkuk writes, For still the vision awaits its appointed time, meaning the return, the fulfillment of God returning, it's, it's waiting its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. And then listen to this. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Circle the word it four times. If it seems slow, what is it? It is God's revealed will. So if you're praying about something you know is God's will, wait for it. It will come. It won't delay. Wait for it. Wait for it. Psalm 
Fact number two, go back to Peter. So the first fact is we need to understand the nature of time and it's completely under God's control. The second thing is really the most important part of this message, and that is the purpose of patience. We find it in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, So he's saying he's not slow as you think he's slow. Like you think he's taking a long time. He's really not slow at all. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a reason why he's making us wait. In other words, this is what Peter's saying. There's a reason why he's making us wait. Because while we wait, he is at work. He's always working. The book of John, it says, my father. Jesus says, my father is always at work. In this This day he's at work, and I too am working. So what is he working at? His primary work right now is salvation. Don't ever forget that. That's his work. In John 3, 17, the first time he came to earth was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we're still in that time. It's called the grace period of God. He's patient. Salvation is the act of delivering us from our sin. If sin, if sin was immediately judged and punished, no one would have a chance. Not one. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. We pick up stones so fast, don't we? Stones hurt. Stones can ruin and destroy because they don't give a person a chance to repent. It's only God's deliberate waiting that gives us time to repent. It's only God's deliberate waiting, put that up there, that gives us time to repent. It is only God's deliberate waiting. That means it's intentional. It's intentional. He's doing it for a purpose. But you and I, most of us walk around with a bag of stones. When I was a little kid, I used to deliver papers, and I had this big bag. It was a white canvas bag, and I'd put newspapers in there and throw it. Imagine you got a bag, and you got stones in there. Most of us are walking around with this bag, carrying stones and holding one in our hand, kind of tossing it. And when we see somebody who does something we don't like, we throw it at them. Look, I cracked open another skull with my anger and judgment. Watch the blood ooze. Isn't that great? Who made us judge? If God wanted to, he could throw a whole mountain at you. Bury you in a mile deep of rock and volcanic ash, leaving you to rot. He didn't have to forgive any of us. He didn't. But he did. And the way he did it is he was spit upon He was crucified and he was humiliated for you. How patient he is. He's kind. In John 4, we find Jesus sitting next to a well where he meets a woman I would think twice of talking to. Jesus says to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Then he says to her, The Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. Why is he talking to her? 
And then why is he telling her about worshiping God? It's because he's full of mercy. He is filled to the brim and abounding with compassion for sinners. Come unto me, all you, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you a rest. And what he's talking about being heavy laden with is sin. That's what he's talking about. That's the issue. He is so ready to forgive, begging all to come. And in order to come, he exercises patience. He exercises patience. In fact, mercy can only grow in the soil of patience. Did you know God takes no pleasure in the death and the punishment of people, even the wicked? That's what verse 9 is about. Not wishing that any should perish. One of the Psalms says, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Do you? Do you want people to have death or salvation? Personally speaking, I'll be honest with you. The greatness of God to me, I'm just saying to me, is not found in his power. It's not found in his brilliance. It's not found in his ability to judge and punish. It is that he would stoop down to me and allow me to know. It's amazing. I have no right even to be near his holiness. None. And yet, he wants to give me his righteousness. Share with me something I could never earn. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And that word steadfast love in the Hebrews, hesed. It's mercy. It's loving kindness. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. This is only possible if God is patient. Sometimes it takes years to woo a stubborn heart. It took Him 23 years to get mine. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love. It endures forever. Fact number three. This is, this is why mercy is so important. Fact number three is the severity of His promise. Verse 10 and 12. Verse 10, But the day the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar and dissolve. And it says, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 12, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire. And dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. There's something God knows that we don't know just how severe this day will be when He's done extending mercy. We just don't get it, truthfully, but God does. When we want, to get, want God to come, we forget what is really going to happen. When He does come, Peter calls it the day of the Lord. For Jewish years, the day of the Lord was not a good day. It was in some sense, but in some sense it was a day to dread. Go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is right after Habakkuk. So you have Joel, Amos. You get to Habakkuk, go one more, and you'll get to Zephaniah. 
I want you to look with me, verses 14 to 18. And as I read this, it's, uh, I had a teacher in school that said hermeneutics is the ability to, to kind of take the Bible apart and understand the words. He said, what we need sometimes is a hermeneutic of emotion to try to be caught up in what the writer is feeling at the time. It's hard to do that. But if you can, try to feel this. This is heavy. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 1, Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near. Near. And it's coming fast. That's what hastening means. The sound of the day of the Lord, the sound is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. It's a day of wrath, is that day. A day of distress and anguish. Often when you read the word anguish in the Bible, they associate the gnawing of teeth with anguish because you're in so much pain. The teeth are gnawing. Every time I read anguish, that's what I think of. So it says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I was talking to Arnie Winnell yesterday, and he said this is okay to share. Arnie Winnell is a veteran from the Vietnam War, and he saw real war. Like he'd go in and do recon on people that were injured. He said, the sound I remember the most. He said, I remember my first night in the bunks, in the bunkhouse, and I heard artillery fire, and I couldn't sleep all night, and everybody around me sleeping. And he said, "Why? how can you sleep with these booms? And I said, oh, that's outgoing artillery. That's outgoing. But you won't sleep on ingoing artillery. And after a couple weeks, he was able to sleep, and all of a sudden, the whole barracks shook. And he woke up, and somebody said, that's incoming. I was asking him, I said, what are some big guns you saw? He said, I saw a howitzer. He said, I said, what can a howitzer do? Like, and we were right over here in this grass. If you shot that howitzer at the, the bank over there, choice one, what would it do? Would it hit? Could you hit it? He'd say, Chris, you'd blow up a hole this big. I said, would it be loud? Like, would you hear it down the street? He goes, you'd hear it five miles away. Constant barrage. This is saying the heavens will roar. The trumpet blast of an army of Christ is coming. Verse 17, I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Peter says, if we go back to Peter in verse 10, this day, it's the day of the Lord, but he describes it. He said, number one, it's definite. It will come. It will come. In other words, when God says something, it's true. So this day will come. It's a certainty. And so as much as you think life will just keep going on this normal humdrum monotony, there's going to be a day when all that's 
done. Second thing is this day is going to come as a thief. It will be sudden, unexpected. It'll seem like a midnight burglary while you were asleep. You just weren't ready for it. Somebody said, what? After first service, you didn't give us a date. I'll never give you a date. The moment you give it a date, you lost. It's just, that's silly. Why do we try? It's coming as a thief. You will have no idea. Some will say, could it come now? Yes. It, it goes back to time. Remember I told you God's eternal. I had a professor at Moody that would say, God's timing of his arrival is like a cloud that's always following you. You never know when it's just going to downpour. It's unexpected. You can't predict it. You can't forecast it. and You're given no inside information on it. But Jesus is coming. And when he comes, the saddest part of all, it means his mercy has reached its limit and his patience has run dry. So are you sure you want him to come back? Well, let's look into this day a little bit. And I'll ask you that after we I describe this day for you. Because uh, the day of the Lord, according to the Old New Testament, it's not a day as 24 hours. It's a period of time that if you are in it, will seem like it's going on forever. People who are not prepared for it who enter it, will beg for it to be done. I'll show you specifically what's going to happen. And it's definite. And the reason why I say that is because faith is believing that what God says are the facts. So these are the facts. First of all, part one of the day of the Lord is called the tribulation period. This is a period of time when God brings begins to finally unload all the wrath that he's been storing up. According to Romans 2.4, right now we're in a period of kindness and patience, grace. And every sin we do, it stores up. Kind of like a dam is holding water as it builds. And this day is going to be the day when he opens the flood of the water. You don't have to follow along, but here is what it's going to be like. Romans 6.12-17. I'm sorry, Revelation 6.12-17. Just listen. If you want to close your eyes and listen, it's kind of heavy. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. I want to call time out a second. What drives me nuts is when all of these guys are trying to predict the future, so they're trying to predict these blood moons. Those are eclipses. Those are, those are not biblical blood moons. A biblical blood moon is a cataclysmic event in the heavenlies where something has happened. I hate how they try to, oh, you see these blood moons? It's the fourth eclipse. Stop it. Listen. The, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Some people say, you don't really believe that's going to happen. I do. Well, I believe it's poetry. If this is poetry, then poetry is often given in the Bible because it, they don't know how to explain with words what it's really going to be like. So actually, poetry is more severe than this. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island 
was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You sure you want them to come back? Part two, the second coming of Christ. This is the period of time when Jesus himself is coming down out of the sky. It's going to be ripped in two. He's going to come down to make claims on his singular right. He owns the title deed of this earth. You can read it in Revelations 4 and 5. Kind of reminds me of a guy, if he loans out his house or apartment and the people just ruin it, he finally is coming back to make it claims on it. That's what's going to happen to earth. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 describes it like this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all you who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. You sure you want Him to come back? Just thinking about this a second. I remember, you might have heard this story. I used to work in this factory in Cleveland, Ohio, with some pretty dark dudes. You know, I mean, sometimes if you work construction, I had to get a job, and it was paying really well, but it was an assembly line. And I worked with some pretty dark dudes, and I wasn't going to be there long because I was going to the mission field. And they found that out, and they said, oh, you're going to the mission field, huh? They started mocking me, like, oh, you're one of those guys, goody-goody guys, you know, and making fun of me. And then they started making fun of Christ. And I said, I don't, it's weird. Every, I try to be really nice. I really do. But I couldn't hold it in. And I looked at this guy, and he's kind of skinny. Now, I, 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 I lift a lot of weights and played rugby right around that time. And this guy was about 5'7", real skinny, had like a rat face. You know, he walked like that. And he'd make fun of me. And then he, you know, and I, it's fine. You can make fun of me. But then he made fun of Jesus. And I looked at him. I said, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. You can say what you want about me. I don't care. But Jesus hears you. Do you understand? And when he comes back, you're going to shut your mouth. And I just went back to work. It was a weird day. Part three, part three. You know, it's funny. Michelle, remember that guy came to church with us? He, he said a little bit while long, he said, can I come to church with you? And he, he smoked, man. He smoked like a chimney. He goes, all right. I said, yeah, I don't care if you smoke. The church people have to deal with that. I'm not a church. I'm a Christian. I'm not a church people. So let them deal with that. He smelled like a Marlboro man sitting next to, like, why is that guy sitting next to you have a cloud ahead? Well, he's just, you know, nothing. Part three. Part three is the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is the period when Jesus will rule the earth with an iron scepter. Satan will be bound, and those who followed him on earth 
will be kept in Hades with him. Some people call it Sheol. It's a holding tank of torture. So the thousand-year reign of Christ will be wonderful for those who follow Jesus here and now, but a living nightmare and a reversal of the fortunes for those who mocked and ridiculed him during this period of grace, of patience. So I, honestly, I want my king to return, but to a degree, not yet. Because there are many I know who are going to be doomed. Then there's part four, the final judgment of mankind. This is the period when all who refused will be brought to account. Revelations 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Why? Because he commands the earth and the sky. Remember when he's on the Sea of Galilee? They fled away at his presence. He's kind of powerful. And there was uh, it's no place for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Books. What are books? I think, scripturally, books are your books of your words, because every word you say in a private will be shouted from the mountaintop. Book of works, what you do. And your book of intent, why you do what you do. Books are open. And then another book will be open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Are you sure you want him to come back? All I can say is praise the Lord for his patience. That's all I can say. Isaiah says, for by fire... The Lord will enter into judgment by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Many. So now what? Peter says we need to learn from this. Verse 11. He asks the question, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be? And in verse 12 says, as you wait for the hastening and coming of the day of God. Waiting for and hastening. And the way verse 12 is saying is, we both wait and we both have the ability to hasten. That's odd. I, I've always thought that's odd. Hasten means, in other words, somehow we may have the ability to bring his return here quicker. We may be cooperating in his return by how we act. That's what I think that means. So, so what do we need to do to, in a sense, hasten the process? Verse 14 to 18, listen to what it says. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and these are those events I just described, be diligent to be found in him, by him without spot or blemish, and be at peace 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Again, it goes back, he's waiting. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Just by the way, how you treat God's scriptures is how he treats you. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and the day of eternity. Amen. So, on the negative side, he's saying, basically, you want to hasten today, stop sinning, be at peace with all people, and don't let deceivers deceive you. On the positive side, Keep growing in Christ. How do you grow? Chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we talked all about it. That's the whole process of growth. How do you, on a negative side, not be deceived? Chapter 2, it's how you avoid false prophets. This past week, we've been, as Jared said, we've been cleaning out the old church. We've been moving boxes, getting ready for the sale. And we th- There's a lot of things we've thrown away, a lot of things. You accumulate a lot of stuff when you live in it for 60 years, over 60 years. But I learned a valuable lesson, and it applies, and listen very close. Here's my valuable lesson I have learned from this move. When you are getting ready to move into a new place, you must get rid of all the used, dirty, broken stuff you no longer want. God is going to send fire to the earth to get rid of the stuff. Peter says, earth, stars, and sun will be melted down to get ready for a glorious rebirth. Brand new. Brand new. One writer says it like this, the new heaven and new earth are not a replacement for a world that is annihilated. Rather, It's going to be a transformed cosmos where righteousness will finally feel at home. The godly will finally be home. That's why he has to burn stuff up. Question is, are you really ready for him to come? And do you want him to? I do. I really do. But it's scary.